My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Zero HP Lovecraft, who is a science fiction writer, a horrorist, a prolific Twitter poster, and uh, in, in my opinion, uh, the, the unofficial king of Twitter. Um, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad to have you here. Thanks. It's great to be here. I uh, listened to your cast with Default Friend and Kashiwagi, so uh, I'm excited. Nice. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, there, there's quite a, a little bit of a uh, backstory between me and, and your your posts. I mean, we, we haven't met before. This is the first time we're talking. Um, but uh, it, it was kind of um, the, the first mover in, in me getting on to Twitter. Uh, I saw one of your threads uh, probably last year in August, and it was a, a very good motivation to, to come on Twitter. And since then, a lot of stuff has, uh, has happened. I mean, I wouldn't be doing this podcast. I would not be uh, doing my Substack or doing anything, to be honest, very creative uh, if it wasn't for that thread. So I'm, I'm, really, uh, I'm really excited to be talking to you. Thank you. Uh, I almost feel like it's a Groundhog Day, but I'm going to ask you which thread was it, if you don't, uh, if you remember. Yeah, this is, I mean, uh, full, full disclosure, people listening to this, we've tried to record this once before. Um, we had a little bit of technical issues, so we've, we're kind of rehashing a conversation we've had uh, before. But the, the thread that, you, uh, that you're asking about is, I, I think, um, the thread where you, um, you say that, you know, uh, people think society should be rewritten to, to make better men. Uh, but it's actually, um, you know, would be more productive to to have it, uh, you know, act act upon women because they're uh, the the more imprintable sex. <laughs> um, and obviously, this is not everything in that thread. It's just kind of how the the thread starts. But um, um, what was really striking to me about that thread was, uh, and and the other threads, because you know, once once you start reading one of your threads, and you also have kind of have this cascading thing that you do where you ref reference threads and other threads, which is kind of quite a quite a masterful thing. Um, but, uh, you know, you kind of get really deep into it. And one one thing that really surprised me was how um, the theory of mind that you you built uh, about women and how they think uh, was something that it took me you know, almost 30 years to to build for myself. <laughs> and I kind of saw that, you know, reflected in, in your work. So, I mean, I guess my first question is like, how how do you know so much about uh, the inner machinations of women? There's a flippant answer I'm tempted to give. If you've ever seen the movie As Good As It Gets, there's this amazing scene where Jack Nicholson is this writer of sort of like romantic novels and a woman comes up to him and says, how do you do it? How do you write from the soul of a woman? And he says, well, I take a man and I remove all logic and accountability. 
<laughs> but a very insulting answer, and they use it to establish, you know, this character is a dick. It's actually a really charming movie. I highly recommend it. It's about his sort of redemption arc, uh, as he like meets this woman and falls in love with her. And there's another scene, which is sort of the the flip of that, where you know he he goes to dinner with his romantic interest, and she says, you know, you're such an asshole. All you do is say negative things. If you don't compliment me right now, this date is over. And so he starts into this story and he explains how he hates taking pills because he's old. He's got, you know, heart condition or something. He says, and she's, she gets mad. She's like, well, you're not complimenting me. You're talking about your heart. He says, no, wait, listen, because I met you, I started taking my pills every day because you make me want to be a better man. And so I think these sort of two anecdotes really both describe the story of the movie and also in some ways my relationship to women uh, <laughs> as a concept. That is, I, I, so I get a lot of flack on Twitter, especially if people want to insult me, they say, uh, oh, zero pussy Lovecraft. That's a common one <laughs> that I hear, very creative. They say I'm an incel, I'm not, but I live in a basement basements are pretty cozy i don't see a problem but i don't live in one. Uh, and there's sort of this idea that if you have an unorthodox view of women you must be this kind of sexual loser but and in fact i think there's a little bit of truth to that and that that's how it probably starts uh everyone has most people have an awkward adolescence you know this is this is very typical you don't know how men and women work when you're a teenager you have a lot of trouble relating to the opposite sex and figuring that out is part of everyone's journey in life. So yes, I had a pretty rocky time of it in high school. I don't think that's anything to be ashamed of. I maybe had more trouble figuring it out than a lot of others. So I had to go a lot deeper and I read a lot of books and articles from the pickup artist community and from the red pill there are some good and bad things about that like there's a lot of really useful psychological insight in those communities which is not scientifically proven right it doesn't have the imprimatur of of institutional science but it's borne out in a lot of anecdotes and analysis by people who are really really motivated to solve a problem they have skin in the game as Talib says. So the the good part of it is building a model of sexuality, of relationships, of how both men and women think and what they want. And the bad part of it is a sort of a bitterness and an anger at women and often at the world because these men want something so badly and it's not something that can be had just by asking for it or by wanting it. So it's it's a, a constant frustration as well. And that breeds a lot of really awful emotions. And it's sort of the difference between the incel community as such, the people who, who call themselves incels. This is a horrible identity to assume. Mm -hmm. Why would you define yourself as a person who doesn't get sex? That's, that's awful. Like that's, you should define yourself in positive ways. I think that's much better. But so part of it is that, and you can find 
these insights, some some flavor of the insight in those places, whether it's Hartiste or uh, even you know some of Rouge's older stuff. Rouge, by the way, has a lot of really awful things that he wrote. I don't judge him for it. I think that was part of his own journey. But there's another side of it as well, which is not at all sort of forbidden. And it's uh, three three books that really sort of transformed the way I think uh, about people and build the theory of mind. One is Irving Goffman, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. Mm-hmm. One is Eric Byrne, The uh, the Games We Play, play which is, yeah, rooted in transactional analysis. And the third was Impro. Uh, I forget the author, Improvisation for Actors. And mm. between these books, you develop a sort of sociological perspective of people as always performing, always playing games, and jockeying for this sort of invisible variable that we call status. And so the, the trick is to take some of those, those red pill pickup artist insights and filter them through this kind of Goffman, uh, Eric Byrne sort of axis and try to understand it in terms of performance and in terms of games and transactions. It's, it's really unpopular to think of social interactions transactionally. And I think it's unhealthy if you, if you do it too much. I don't, I try not to relate to women transactionally. I think that's really, really bad. It's not, it's not a, uh, if you do that, you're talking about prostitution, not love, right? Yeah. yeah. I think it, it also depends how you define a transaction. Cause I, that's kind of a pushback I get as well. Cause I'm like, my, my background is like, as a, an economist, I've, that's kind of my interest as well. And I usually kind of resort to the lingo of economics when I kind of explain social phenomena and uh, people are like, yeah, you know, you can't, you can't, this is reductive. And, um, but you know, a transaction is not necessarily, it's not necessarily in money. You could, you know, it's, it's give and take. That's essentially what a transaction is. And um, there, there has to be some value in, in a relationship you know, there's always value. People, some people say, oh, you know, the unconditional love, you know, maybe maybe for your closest kin. But when you, you interact with people, you know, outside of that, then, you know, there, there is some value exchange happening. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be monetary, but, you know, there, there is something there. Absolutely. The only, maybe the closest thing in the world to unconditional love is the love of a mother for a child. You know, if a if the child is a serial killer, if the child does every horrible thing in the world, their mother will still love them generally. I think that's good. But beyond that, no, of course you have to provide value to the other person. It's, it's not that you don't have to provide value, it's that you shouldn't be keeping an Excel spreadsheet of that value. You know, there's, a, there's an elasticity to, to that credit. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I mean, kind of referring back to your, your comment on, on pickup artistry. I mean, I've, I've, I've also uh, perused the, the, the space um, and kind of the, the, the MRA MGTOW space more, less so the pickup artistry, because I mean, I'm not necessarily technically interested in, in, in how to do it, but it's, um, 
it was interesting because you also had a, a thread about pickup artistry and you were kind of um, uh, uh, comparing it to, to, I think it was an Asimov story where someone kind of reverse engineers yes. uh, mathematics from, from some form of like cybernetic system. Um, and, you know, I thought that was extremely good insight. And I think that that applies to a lot of things. Uh, you know, this this kind of cargo cultism that we have for, for so many spaces. Like, uh, you know, this is essentially the, the argument that Alistair McIntyre has in After Virtue, that we're essentially a cargo cult of, of natural law, of, of Christianity, and we, we, you know, there's not really any basis for, for morality. Um, and this is also something I've, I've kind of done. Uh, because now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm one of the trad Twitter people. I'm trad. I'm I'm kind of like a, a Christian, and uh, it, it's it's something I had to reverse engineer from from kind of from rationalist principles. It, it wasn't something that I, I took for granted, but it took me yeah another what twenty years to think my way into the the practice of these things. So it was. It's. It, I think this is a phenomenon that we're we're seeing in in so many places. But I'm curious what your what your take is on that. Uh, a few things. I don't really consider myself to be trad as such, or at least I think that the the idea of being trad, as as others have pointed out, I think Evola even talks about this. Full disclosure: I haven't really read much Evola that uh, in order to be trad, well, being trad is a, a uniquely modern phenomenon. People who are authentically traditional aren't aware of themselves as being traditional. They're simply living in, in the current that, that surrounds them. To sort of stand up and say, I am trad, is to have a conception of modernity and a conception of traditionalism. So you're sort of, if you're trad, you're neo-trad, by default. And I think it's really important to be aware of that because obviously technology, more more than any social uh, event, the, the technologies we live in just present us with a very different world from the world where those traditions evolve. So tradition has to inform our approach to morality, our approach to love and other people. But at the same time, we we do need to be aware that there are these differences and honestly no one has found a great solution to them that's that's sort of the idea of tradition is that it evolves and the way it evolves is that people try a lot of different things and most of them fail and what endures that becomes tradition and that's good so no one knows really how to deal with a massively connected and many ways post-scarcity society that we live in and ultimately what we hope is that we can keep the things we like, like the technologies and you know, the food production methods and so on, but that a better way of living will eventually emerge and win out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's uh, <clears throat> as I said, you know, everything, everything's a cargo cult, everything's a, a LARP and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the first to admit it. Um, I think the, the, the challenge is, like you said, you know, what 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 parts do we take you know without without an actual tradition to to you know feed feed our culture um you know the 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 larping is uh is is kind of 
I don't know. It's, it's a bit of a pick and mix. <laughs> not not necessarily. Uh, uh, it's it's not necessarily tradition. It's just like saying, okay, this this stuff that we're doing at the moment doesn't work. This stuff in the past used to work in you know in a one-sided fashion. Um, you know, there there are definitely a lot of downsides. But I think now a lot of people, you know, myself included, are trying to kind of plumb tradition for. The good stuff, but at the same time, is it you know was it good in context? Will will you know will the good stuff work in a new context? So um, it's it's you know it's it's quite a it's quite a, a weird place to be in to be honest. And yeah, it's just, it's not very coherent. Like it doesn't you know there's not much that makes sense in this space. There's nothing traditional about us going on a podcast and talking from halfway across the world, and mm -hmm. so any attempt at traditionalism has to be able to reconcile with that but there's also a zen-like element to it you know there's this uh this idea in some zen traditions that you you almost already are enlightened and you just have to realize it and so many things are almost this simple like you just need to realize just stop doing the bad things just stop doing the things that hurt you whether it's turn off your phone at night just go up and talk to her bro like in a way very simple but at the same time you can spend a lifetime realizing a lot of these things yeah yeah there's uh there's a lot of things that are just cloaked by by uh noise at the moment you know the, the, the very um just very natural human basic, you know, logical impulses have been, you know, they're, they're just kind of uh, drowned out by, um, by complexity, by just, you know, layers upon layers of, uh, you know, over socialization, things that it's sometimes, you know, insights about human nature that, you know, kind of, they, they're like in, they sit in my guts. I know that this is the case, but you kind of have to teach yourself them again because just the, the noise of, of society is just really is, is blaring. And, um, you know, and I, I think a, a lot of them are, are quite hidden because other people don't really mirror them. You know, the, 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 the layer of, uh, of, you know, social software is really thick. And then when you find out, you know, the thing that we used that everyone used to know until, you know, like five years ago, uh, you, you kind of are like, I don't know alone in the storm because you know no one no one else is talking about this stuff and that's that's why I found your thread so um, enticing because like you know every, every one of the tweets you know was was loaded with uh, with matter of fact stuff that is true and that I, I you know I could see it with the eyes of of someone who's you know who's has the the social software really you know laid on thick and I could I could hear myself screeching while I was reading them and it, you know it's it's you know I, I could imagine the, the the horror of someone normal and you could see that at, at you know at the bottom of your tweets there's always like a handful of people saying oh I can't believe this got so many likes or you know just people that you completely they they probably got you know stuck on a few tripwires reading it they didn't get the message at all um, and they were just kind of you know in shock and then they said oh my god yikes or something like that and it's it's i don't know it's it's quite a a weird feeling uh to know that you know we're, we're kind of in the midst of that yes every thread is a battleground and uh twitter is a battleground if i tweet about buddhism i write a thread about buddhism i get a bunch of angry buddhists and i have to argue with buddhists for three days not very zen if i do a thread about if i do a tweet about veganism 
uh, then I get to argue with vegans for three days. And if I do a tweet about breastfeeding, then I get to argue with people who think that my perspective on breastfeeding is wrong. And, it, and there's always about a three-day cycle of these things. It takes out three days for the spectacle to end, whatever that is, at whatever level it exists. So sometimes you grow a little bit tired of fighting, but at the same time, I think it strengthens you. It strengthens your, your position and your argument. It's, it's a hormetic in a lot of ways. Yeah, you've had a, a recent run-in with uh, <laughs> with Oatly, which was really <laughs> was really interesting. Uh, Oatly, for whoever doesn't know what Oatly is, is oat milk, uh, which is a you know industrial product um, that's made by smushing together oats with rapeseed oil or something like that. It's it's a, it's not a not a great substance, uh, but they had this this ad that was extremely condescending to fathers and it's just like it's just a the, the, the most annoying ad ever uh and then their pr team went on um on a i don't know they, they tried to act like wendy's or something trying to be funny and stuff and it just turned out really bad especially when they met you so <laughs> could you tell me a bit about that exchange yes there's there's so many facets to this in one sense it's very low effort to you know uh the, there's there's a human on the other end that we account right there might be multiple but when they tweet as the brand the they're dehumanizing themselves they're speaking almost from the voice of god we we argue about whether corporations are people it's really the other way around people are corporations and so to just sort of take the person writing that tweet out of their corporate context and say listen you social media intern it's it's a very obvious and easy thing to say, but I think it frames the exchange in a way that like, it breaks some of the expectations, so it's funny. It's probably more fun to talk about the ad or the product. I don't really have strong opinions about the product. Uh, I don't even think that necessarily the chemical voodoo they're doing to make this substance is all that bad. you know. If you read a little bit about food chemistry and you understand what they're doing, most of it's probably fine. There is a really strong pushback against seed oils, and I think that there's probably more to that critique. But look, if you eat a fast food cheeseburger or almost anything in any restaurant, you're consuming as much seed oil as if you drink a glass of Oatly. So that it's funny to bludgeon them with health claims. But I think that that kind of analysis ultimately is, is an isolated demand for rigor. It's the moralizing element of it that, that I find. It's as if your father, if they treat it like your father is, I don't know, murdering puppies in his basement or something. Like, did you know as many as 75% of fathers are torturing helpless puppies in the basement? Here are some tips that you can use to talk your father out of puppy torture. And that really is the level of, of moral equivalence that they're on. You know, milking cows isn't even, isn't even bad. Like cows produce milk. Sure, there are some industrial farming practices that maybe we don't care for, but it's this idea that you're, you're a bad person because you drink milk and a good person because you drink Oatly. This is absurd. It's an absurd claim and it's, uh, it's sanctimonious and they should be mocked for. Yeah, 
Absolutely. This this uh, addition of, of morality in, into commerce, um, you you see it now. I mean, there was this, this kind of um, viral tweet going around about uh, this, this rapper woman, FKA Twigs, who had like a, this, this photo shoot. And she was essentially had, had an article about her abuse at the hands of, uh, of Shia LaBeouf and, um, you know, how she how she's a survivor. And, you know, then the next photo, she was, you know, just just posing and, you know, trying trying to sell you like, I don't know, a blazer or, or whatever. Um, you know, there's there's AOC who's kind of, you know, moralizing. She, she's selling a different product, but she's selling nonetheless like this, this encroachment of, of you know, hysterical levels of, of moralizing into, you know, the, the political and commercial space um, is, 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 I don't know, it's, it's, it's quite a, a weird development uh, and it's, it's kind of been ratcheting up, you know, it's, it's always been going on, you know, in, in slight ways. There's, you know, pe people want to be part of the, the good crew, uh, but now it's, you know, it's kind of reached a, a fever pitch. Yes, I, I think that this this dynamic of sort of having, for lack of a better word, witch hunts, and I don't like to call it a witch hunt because, you know, burning witches at the stake is probably a pretty base thing to do. But uh, I feel like the dynamic has always been with us. Like people, people collectively enforce norms, and more than that, they punish people who don't. They punish non-punishers. And this is how groups cohere. It, it's simply a fact. So I think it's tempting to condemn moralizing as moralizing, but maybe a more, uh, maybe a better way of looking at it is that the morals they're enforcing are absolutely broken. And I wouldn't necessarily mind everyone piling on and enforcing good morals, whatever those are. That's that's another interesting question. That's a deep question, perhaps with no great answer. But it's the fact that the morals they're pushing are so self-destructive and bad. What we would like is for popular morality to align the interests of the group that's pushing it with the with the morals that are being enforced. Mm -hmm. If your if your morals are like destroy whiteness and you're a bunch of white people, then you're pushing against yourself. And if you keep enforcing that moral idea, then ultimately you must destroy your own society. You must like you must end yourself. So, but we can imagine a morality that isn't like that, that is actually self. That's uh, it's good for the self. That builds that builds you up. That builds up your community. It's never going to be. Well, in past eras, we've had this type of morality, right? There have been eras when morality didn't mean cutting yourself off at the knees. And so that's what I'd like to see. Not the end of moralizing, but the improvement of moralizing. Yeah. I mean, you can you can see this in a way with the, with the rise of the West. And if you take kind of Christianity as the, as the software behind it, um, it was probably one of the, the the most useful sets of, of collective and individual morality and kind of their interplay. Uh, and I mean, obviously, you, you can also take this in the context of the populations it arose from, because arguably, it couldn't have arisen anywhere else. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's quite the the productive interplay It almost created this this alien civilization in the West that, you know, even now, I mean, from coming from Eastern Europe, we still 
worship the West in, in kind of in, in weird ways, like almost, uh, again, almost like a cargo cult, but, you know, the, the, the idea of the market, of technology, of, of, you know, free enterprise, things like that, you know, it's, it's, it's almost alien, even from, you know, a, a stone's throw away in, in Europe. Um, so there's, there's this layer to it. Um, I'm, I'm not sure um, if this is a natural, you know, because people are, are very much on the kind of the, the neoliberal Whig history bandwagon now that, you know, things are things are going in a, in a uh, progressive direction, you know, where we're on the, the long arc of history that's always going uh, towards, towards better and better, you know, the Steven Pinker take on, on history. Um, I don't think there's anything baked into that. I don't think there's anything natural into that. I think that, you know, things like, you know, ancient Rome, um, you know, pockets of, of ancient Greece uh, and, and the West in the last few hundred years were flukes in the long arc of, arc of history and it can go down just as much as it can go up. So um, I don't know, what's, what's, your, what's your feeling about that? You know, are we, are we on the path to progress or, or not so much? Well, so the the sort of right wing answer to that kind of Steven Pinker thinking is to bring up Spengler or Turchin or these ideas like quantity of waves. There are civilizational cycles. Uh, is is the other hypothesis, and uh, we rise and then we fall. And I have to thank my friend uh, Astral Flight for reminding me that Spengler wrote that vegetarianism is often a sign of the decadence and decline of civilizations or vegetarian movements are just to tie it back to Oatly. But the, so one, one hypothesis is, okay, yes, we're just caught in like some kind of civilizational cycle. That seems very possible and very likely, but the, the alternative to that is that we are more like the sorcerer's apprentice and we've summoned this demon, this spirit, called techno capital and that it's sort of continually reinforcing and building itself and that they're actually a very different thing from human civilization that is self-reinforcing and trying to escape that's the accelerationist position and the question for accelerationists is is there enough fuel for the the machine that we call techno capital to shed the human substrate that birthed it. Now, if you want to call that progress, I suppose you could from the perspective of the, the techno capital singularity. Yes, I, I guess it is progress. But if, if that other story is true, then it's, it's progressing towards a very inhuman world. It's something, as you said, alien, something other. And that is where my interest in Lovecraft sort of joins with this conversation because it's something Lovecraft dramatizes and mythologizes something that's outside of human uh, comprehension, outside of something you could even imagine, this true other, this true alien. And that's how I think of progress, if you like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the the accelerationist argument is, uh, you know, it's, it's got legs. It's probably the most uh, the the most horrifying and, you know, like you said, the most uh, you know, body horror inducing um, 
of, of all the of all the future timelines. But uh, I mean, think, thinking about techno capital and and essentially the fact that we are we're now embedded in in layers upon layers of, of self reinforcing loops, both in the market um, technology, obviously, and also in in our mental software. Like I think you had this really good argument about feminism. Um, that you know there, there are there are self-reinforcing downward spirals baked into feminism like the the first one is you know yeah antinatalism the second one is you know women are getting uglier <laughs> and it's uh there's quite a, a few of them i mean i'm curious if you want to expound on that i thought it was a really really good argument yeah and they don't have to get uglier at all right i mean really uh women are beautiful i mean by default like in the state of nature women are beautiful and then they uh you know they they abuse their bodies they cover them in in tattoos and piercings and they uh eat you know horrible diets they never do any kind of of exercise and and they they basically present unhealth and when you do that you get a lot of negative attention, I think. Like, there will be some people, uh, often other women, who will be the first to cheer you and say, oh, yes, you look so great with that uh, giant wedge in your nose or whatever. And they probably really mean it, but we think that on a subconscious level, they're so happy that their rival just made herself, you know, so unappealing. But so you, so that, that attention kind of drives a feedback loop, right? And the the girl who makes herself ugly says well the world should be hospitable to people like me people who are uglier and so they, they kind of continue pushing on the the lines that that allow them to do this that cause them to to get to uglify themselves and i i totally understand i think i really sympathize even I think that those women a lot of the time are going through a very similar arc to what a lot of the like men go their own way or MREs are going through. Like really they're the exact mirror of each other. There's a term, you know, they call these men neckbeards, and the the feminine complement of that is a leg beard. If, if some people say blue hair now, but I think leg beard is much more yeah, or wine aunt is a, and, another one. Yeah. Well, the Wynaunt is the is the next Pokemon evolution of the Legbeard, perhaps. That's what she becomes. And really, if you think about it, all the incels are supposed to be marrying all the Legbeards, and like they're they're supposed to be. There are two groups of unhappy people who have rendered themselves both physically and philosophically unfit for each other, but. Ideally, what if what if all those people could just like get over it uh, and and date each other? It might be fine, right? Like we we should push them towards health. We should push them towards psychological health, towards physical health. But instead, we tell them no. Uh, being this sort of atomized creature, seeing everyone else as your enemy, uh, you know, whatever you are, that's fine. If you're if you're fat, that's fine. If you are you know full of anger that's fine you should be angry like but you shouldn't uh there are legitimate reasons to be angry but 
it'd be much better to like to process that anger and to suppress it. A lot of the time being angry feeds itself too. It's all cybernetic. If you if you go around being angry, you'll find more things that anger you and your anger will get deeper. Just like so the the psychological ugliness deepens itself too. Better to just take a breath, lift some weights, or or whatever you like. Yeah, that that kind of reminds me of a, of another point you made, and I thought was really good around around toxic masculinity and this this whole demand that we see, you know, from women towards men to open up, to be more vulnerable, to um, to talk about their feelings. Um, I know you're not necessarily a support of this, but what's uh, what's the what's the argument here? I mean, should should men be uh, not be talking about their feelings? Arguably, no. Well, so there's there's some implicit assumptions there. I would say that when you go to one of these incel or or red pill forums, the men there are talking about their feelings. I think the memes capture it really well. It's like women, men, you should talk about your feelings. Men actually talk about their feelings. Women, no, no, not like that. Like they want you to say, I guess, to express very feminine emotions. And if you assume, if you think that there's fundamentally no psychological differences between men and women, then it's easy to see how you arrive at this perspective. Well, if men aren't saying, if men aren't acting like women, then they must not be expressing their true feelings. The typical mind's fallacy rules everything around me. <laughs> and it's, it's so hard, almost impossible, I think. This is something that woke people have direct. You really don't know what it's like to live in someone else's head. You, you, can, you can hypothesize, you can build a model of another person, but you can never really understand their subjective experience. That doesn't mean their subjective experience is right uh, or better than yours, but you really can't get into it from the inside. So, uh, I want to be perfectly honest, I lost my train of thought there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, no worries. It's um, it's a it's a sprawling subject. Um, it's it actually, you know, to be honest, this is a this is a place where I get a lot of pushback because you know it. It's clear that a lot of my audience uh, is male, and I do sometimes try to encourage, um, you know, men to, you know, to, I don't know, th this is going to sound terrible, but like, you know, to, to be men, to embody masculinity in the, the old world style of masculinity. And this is terrible coming from me, obviously, because, you know, at the same time, I want to acknowledge that there are many barriers in the way of doing this. Uh, there are many, both institutional, cultural, uh, even, you know, diet is, is a barrier. But at the same time, there is no way around this. And this is something I'm, I'm going to have to stress many times. And people are going to say that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm putting, the, I'm sh I'm putting the, the blame of feminism on the shoulders of men. But there is, in my perspective, no way around this because, um, you know, there, there is not going to be a rights revolution for incels. There is nature does no, not never. have uh, yeah this does not have warm fuzzy feelings for for the incel um, and you know I think you made this point as well that there's you know there's not there's not gonna be like you know Marxian uprising class consciousness or whatever uh, for for men who can't get laid um, I mean I'm curious so what, why do you think that is I've tried to push on this a little bit there's a bit of scientific evidence for it as much as I'm cautious to invoke that 
that uh, both men and women just have trouble believing bad things about women. Whether it's, if you show men and women a scientific study that finds something bad about women, no one will believe it. Men won't believe it, women won't believe it. But if you show them a study that says something bad about men, everyone believes it. They have no trouble accepting this. And I, I actually think that's fine. I think arguably society should be structured to favor women in many ways. We want men who take risks. We want men who fail because if there's no men who are failing, there's also no men who are succeeding. So I, I think on some level it's okay, but I also find that there's a, a gaslighting element to it. Like when I was growing up, I remember I have this very distinct memory. I was in like a department store with my mother. I was a little kid and there were all these clothes, you know, for, for little boys and little girls, they're all next to each other. And there was a big wall of, of like girls clothes with slogans on them that said, uh, boys are bad, throw rocks at them. And, you know, uh, like really, frankly, imagine, imagine the reversal of that. Imagine a little boy wearing a shirt that said, girls are bad, throw rocks at them. This is, this is unthinkable. Yeah. <laughs> and, and pointing out, like, imagine if they were switched is a time-honored right-wing tradition that goes nowhere. Uh, I don't think we should make the egalitarian argument here, but I remember seeing that, like seeing a wall of girls' clothing with slogans like that on it, and thinking like this is really this is really the the world we live in you know uh it does a number on you and if you try to live your life by kind of the progressive generalist life plan where you you respect women and i don't mean that in the literal sense i mean that in like the mean sense of the woman respecter who who logs on uh you're going to be lonely there's absolutely no way that if you live according to the progressive gender strategy, you're going to be successful with, with women. There was a great story that was published in some left-leaning uh, mag, I forget, about this incel guy. Yeah. I wish I, I remember could remember the title, but it went viral last yeah. year. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, very and good. It perfectly like, captured what will happen if, if you try to respect women in this way. So, uh, and the idea is that the opposite of that is somehow misogyny. It's not like you, you want a man who is strong, who's able to handle like social pressure. Uh, and that's the idea of the shit test also, which yeah. some people prefer to call the fitness test. Like there's nothing wrong with it. You don't resent it. But when we give you a shit test and you, you swat it away and that's flirtation, there's nothing wrong with it, but we, we don't learn that anywhere except these dark online corners. Imagine if they just told all the little boys, look, men are going to test you by giving you shit. And all you have to do is like smile and agree and amplify and like, and she'll giggle and everything will be fine. This is so hard to learn, but so easy to convey. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's like a, an infinity of, of non, not explained realities about people. And that's, that's why I was interested in, in all these forums as well. Um, there, there's another thing that you, you talked about, which is bullying, which is kind of the, 
the male shit testing that happens with with boys and um this is another thing that you know i've posted about people have given me shit about but it's like i i really think that bullying has a you know there's a social function to bullying and we we banish it at our peril um i'm curious what what your your angle is on this i don't think i have a unique take on this if people if there's no bullying at all as a child, then you'll never be able to handle the bullying you face as an adult. I think that's that's pretty straightforward. And if if you're acting stupid, if you're acting weak and doing something that's detrimental to the group, then the group can't help it. They bully you. They want to because they want to, not they want. The, the group mind wants to make you stronger. It's like, well, you're being a little bitch. So we're going to hurt you until you toughen up. That's, I actually think this is another sort of male, female psychological difference. I don't think bullying is nearly as useful for girls as for boys. Like we have a, we should have an instinct. I think there's an innate instinct. Like I said, the same way we can't believe bad things about women easily. We want to protect them. If someone's bullying a little girl, we stop them and we should stop them. But if someone's bullying a little boy, we shouldn't stop them. We should let the little boy take his lumps and learn to fight and defend himself. And that's also normal. And if you, if you do that, then you'll have much less of a problem with men who don't know how to be men. I yeah. Think. I think there's just an interesting gender uh, difference there. Because typically when you have, you know, little kids, you, you have boys bullying boys, you know, you have girls bullying girls, and there's just different styles of bullying. Um, if you see a, a little boy beating up a little girl, that's a kind of, you know, bet between the factions, and that's a bit that's a bit weird. And I, I guess you should break that one up. But, um, but when, when women bully each other, um, you know, there's, there's no, very rarely is there a cat fight, you know, you, you end up, you know, clawing at each other and, and pulling out each other's hair, but that's like very extreme. That doesn't really happen. There's a, a lot of reputational uh, stuff. There's ostracism, there's gossip, there's, you know, people, you know, being driven to, to the edge of madness by, by being uh, isolated. So um, there's, there's, it, it, I don't know. I'm just, I was thinking, you know, when, when I was growing up and I was, you know, I was bullied, I was a bully. I was, I, I went through the whole thing. Um, and I was thinking, you know, what's, what's the benefit of it? But I think it's just, you know, to, to make you a capable, you know, eunuch at the, at the king's court, you know, to, to play the social game much better. Um, but at the same time, it's also it's, it's quite quite disturbing. It really it really can mess you up, and I've seen a lot of people get messed up from it. You know, guys as well as girls. But uh, I think I think for women, it just takes a a different um, yeah, it has a different valence. The movie Mean Girls is actually a a genius epic of the modern era. I really think so, and I'd like to thank Visa Khan the i don't know how you say his handle visa for uh for constantly harping on how insightful this movie is it's really good but you know yeah but you you have to feel pain in order to grow this is kind of the the nick landian insight that i used to push a lot harder and i still will push which is the idea that everything of value is built in hell the the world is hell-based in order for good things to emerge bad things have to happen the goodness we create is a reaction to 
the bad things that exist in the world. And uh, that's how evolution works. I'm actually, I'm going to pull up the quote, pull up the quote, because so, so perfectly in this classic Xeno Systems blog post. Uh, let's see. I can find it. Unfortunately, the blog Xeno Systems is gone. Well, anyway, he says that uh, the, no, I have to find, I'm sorry. It's, it's <laughs> important. No worries. I have in my notes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Here we are. All health, beauty, intelligence, and social grace has been teased from a vast butcher's yard of unbounded carnage, requiring incalculable eons of massacre to draw forth even the subtlest of advantages. Advantages. So, so you, you should embrace hormetic pain. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> it's 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 interesting because uh, essentially how I how I found uh, kind of this this dark corner of the internet first was through Nick Land, like he was the first person that I I kind of um, knew about, and it's interesting that you referred to him. I'm curious, you know, how um, how how did you get radicalized? People are asking. <laughs> huh. I actually I think I've already answered that, but yes, I. I have existed in, in this dissident sphere for quite a long time, not as long as some, but I found the blog Hartiste, which was called Roycey back in the day, and he had a link to unqualified reservations in his sidebar, and this was, well, more than a decade ago. And so I started reading Mencius Moldbug, and it was very difficult to accept. It was a, a lot of things that really challenged my uh, my beliefs and my perspectives. And I didn't really believe, I didn't really accept it at first, but eventually as I got a little bit older and watched the world unfolding, I decided that Moldbug's model was at least as they say, directionally true. And, uh, in about 2013, there was kind of an explosion of uh, neo-reactionary blogs because Moldbook had stopped blogging for a while. There were next like so many like Handle and Radish Mag and a lot of Nidraku. All these people are more or less gone now, but there were a lot of really good writers back then who expounded on these concepts and introduced me to kind of the wider world. Of, of reactionary thought. So I've, I've lived with these ideas for a long time. And at some point you make your peace with them and you, you stop, uh, on some level you stop testing them and you start applying them instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in, in what way are, are you applying them? If you can say. Uh, well, obvious way of course is with my online presence and i do get 
this occasionally on Twitter, you'll get into this argument where someone's like, why are you saying these things? What are you going to do? Are you going to change the world? And the answer is no, certainly not, not by myself anyway. But, but the question equally applies to you then. Why are you pushing back against what I'm saying? Like, what are any of us doing? And that's where you get into like the, the Goffman uh, improv for actors kind of access again. Well, people are doing it for social status. I think that I'm still working on the best way to articulate this thesis uh, and have been for quite a while that a lot of the, the social conditions you face like the ideological conditions, the woke conditions, if you like, they're peer to peer. We, we have a sense that they're coming from somewhere distant, somewhere up above us. But really, if I, if I say a bad thing, the people who react to it and who punish me socially are the people around me. It's the people in my company. It's the people I'm friends with. It's, you know, faceless people online. And so by standing up and having that different perspective and saying, no, actually these things are beautiful and these things are true and your model is wrong. I think this actually, I think this is very important. I think it's important to sort of stand up and, and present that model of truth. There are personal ways I apply it as well, but uh, I prefer not to discuss those. Yeah. That makes sense. I think that, uh, you know, that, that reflects a lot of my, my thinking as well with, uh, you know, why I in the end decided it was okay to, you know, uh, be a bit edgier on my blog <laughs> and, you know, uh, be a, a shit poster. Um, but it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's still, you know, it's still a tricky space. I think this is a, you know, a good place to, to ask you about uh, anonymity because you're, you're probably one of the, one of the bigger and more, you know, known anonymous accounts on Twitter. Um, you're also an anonymous writer. You have a, a nom de plume, uh, you, you, you write fiction, uh, science fiction, and it's, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting space to be in because at the moment, you know, the, the true dissident, the people who can actually, you know, go, go balls to the wall with the, with the, yeah, speaking truth to power are anonymous accounts. Um, you know, I'm curious what you see the, the, the future of anonymity being, you know, are we going to go full anonymous or are there going to be more, uh, face posters like, like myself trying to kind of, uh, you know, cover the ground between, or maybe a mix of the two. If an idea gains traction, it might well start with anonymous people, but it doesn't truly enter society until there are people who are able to say it safely with their own face and their own name attached. I think that there's always been a tension between sort of like institutions and outsiders and outsiders often are going to bring, well, outside perspectives. So that's just the natural sort of churn of ideas and how they work their way through society. You know, Schopenhauer was an outsider and he had some great thoughts on whether philosophy could ever be done inside a university. I think we're seeing that same dynamic now. The reason that anonymity is particularly important is because the world has become so centralized and so hyper-connected. You know, a hundred years ago, if I wanted to write what I was writing and say what I was saying, I could well do it under my own name, 
And if you're in another part of the world reading my, my book or my pamphlet or something, what are you going to do to me? Absolutely nothing. Even if it makes you very angry. Mm. I suppose you could like travel around the world to fight me or something. But now all that really has to happen is there's a few nerds with, uh, with like a database somewhere. And in one SQL statement, they can shut off my bank account. And, you know, suddenly I can't, I can't transact. And this is not a death sentence exactly, but it's, it's a very powerful form of ostracization. And so what I get a lot of people who push back on anonymity, they say, oh, you're paranoid. Oh, you know, no one's going to cause you any problem for saying these things. And, and again, it's typical minds. They're right. 99% of people are not going to do anything bad with that information, but a very tiny minority will. And we see it actually pretty often that someone anonymous maybe reacts very badly to it. A lot of the time it's someone with a, a failure to take the necessary precautions in their security, but still like it is, it is a dangerous game to be because of the centralization of finance, because of the way that the world is so connected. Those, a lot of people can find my work, but also the bad actors or the malicious ones can find you very, very easily and yeah. hurt you from across the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's always kind of the the sort of Damocles hanging over over everyone, you know, playing playing any any game at the moment. Um, I think just from from my perspective and kind of why I'm I'm kind of invested in this course of action now is just um, I'm I got really really fed up with the opposite of it. It's, it's almost like I'm a, I'm a, it's just like a, almost a physiological reaction of having to, to speak out about stuff because I mean, I've, I was I was working in tech for like five, five years and in the UK and, and just like this, this viscous monoculture and, you know, just feeling drained and I just couldn't do it. And I just kind of had to had to go 180 degrees and say, OK, I'm just going to have to, you know, be myself. Also, obviously, I am literally a world away from most of the people following me and the most of the people who would be angry with me. I mean, literally in, you know, in the sticks in Romania. So it, it does help. But at the same time, yeah, I don't know. Um, not, not, you know, a very, very impulsive, very emotion driven, very feminine way of, of dealing with this problem. <laughs> didn't, didn't necessarily think it through, you know, in, in great, great detail, but um, kind of, uh, this is my personal backlash. Um, and I mean, up to, up to this point, it's been okay, but you know, who who can tell what's what what's going to happen? I think it's also, frankly, a lot harder to cancel a woman. Uh, you know, sure you, you so. have a lot more sort of social avenues open to you, and also, just in general, women tend to be a little bit better at social maneuvering than men. Like, you're more conscious of who's threatening you, in my opinion and sort of what very subtle and soft steps you need to take in order to deal with those threats. That's just, again, like the female side of bullying. You know, your whole life, you've probably had other girls trying to take you down in these very, very roundabout ways. Uh, that's what girls do to each other. Yes. You know, they, they take each other down in the name of, of cooperation, in the name of concern, like, I'm so worried about you because of this. And really what they're saying is die, bitch, die. But the, the way they... <laughs> 
they instinctively cloak it as like, you know, I want what's best for you. Yeah. And, and men are just completely, not always, but are men who don't think about it carefully can be oblivious to this kind of signal. So it's probably better coming from you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm definitely not like a a philosopher or anyone who's like very very original. I'm probably just a communicator. And if I if, if my role in this thing is to kind of be be a conduit, uh, um, you know, some something to, to to precipitate some some reactions around me, I think that's you know that's that's great and that's kind of the goal of of all of this, you know, um, because like you said, you know, some of this stuff needs to be laundered. <clears throat> and if I'm if I'm the launderer, then then so be it. Hopefully, hopefully people will like my my style. Um, yeah. I mean, you you have a um, a really interesting um, quote that I think is is on your blog as well, and I've I've written it down here uh, verbatim, which is I I think it kind of encapsulates a lot of the things that you're you're talking about and the stuff that we've talked about before, but um, it kind of has an extra layer to it. So it's um, an increasing proportion of industrial surplus is being absorbed by the task of masking biosocial deterioration. This is this is a heavy sentence, but I'm I'm curious kind of how how you you break it down. Obviously, now I'm asking you to explain. You know, you probably everything <laughs> everything you write about, but right. I think this particular sentence is really interesting. No, no. So this is actually another quote that I took from Nick Land, and okay. you know, we're all really just intermediaries for the people who influenced us. It was kind of a throwaway comment, I think, because in maybe 2017 there were sort of different factions of Nickland appreciators. The, uh, the left accelerationists, the universal accelerationists and, and others. And so someone asked Nick if he could just say what these different factions are. And that was how he defined right accelerationism. It's the claim that an increasing portion of uh, industrial surplus is being used to mask biocapital deterioration. What would that actually so it means that there are, there's an idea in, in neo-reaction of an IQ shredder, and it may not have come from neo-reactionaries, which is that a city functions as an IQ shredder because it's very attractive to smart people. There are many opportunities there for, uh, for sex, for money, for profit, for novel experiences, which smarter people tend to prefer more novelty. And so they go to city and then people who go to cities don't have many children because it's expensive to live in a city space is at a premium. It's hard to pay for your children. It's hard to give them spaces to be with more risks of violence. So for, for this combination of, of factors, cities are IQ shredders because they take bio capital in the form of, of genetic potential for intelligence and they squander it on things that are not making more smart people. Singapore has a really low fertility rate and a really smart populace, for example. I used, I wouldn't say New York City is the same, but I can no longer say that New York City has a really smart populace without laughing. There are smart people there, certainly. But so the idea is that even though we have this dysgenic effect that's caused by technology, we balance it and the result looks like a net gain because it is a net gain in some ways by increasingly building technology, which gives us more leverage, more food, more, you know, 
more industry, more productivity comes from technology it's being produced by people who there are fewer and fewer of them who are able to produce it over time. So that's kind of the, the de-accelerationist hypothesis that at some point, because technological increase allows us to make a game, even as we lose the intelligent people who are able to, to make those gains, uh, which, where, where does the graph intersect? Does it intersect at a point where we run out of smart people and all our technology is just magic to us and we can't maintain it? Arguably, we are already, we, we see that in many ways. It's not evenly distributed. If you're familiar with Warhammer 40K, this is pretty much how the space Marines regard their armor. It's magic, it's sacred. They don't know how it works. So we could get to that future, perhaps. Uh, on the other hand, either enough bio capital to actually cause a takeoff, to, to build so much technology that the technology no longer needs us in order to build itself. This is the, the question of, of that statement mm -hmm. with attention. Yeah. Yeah. This is, yeah. this is very much, um, you know, a straight up accelerationist, uh, de-accelerationist argument. Um, I'm curious if, if you have any glimmer of hope that there might be a third way where, you know, the, the, the remnants of, of, uh, you know, of kind of eugenic populations might, might reconsider their, their pathway, you know, change course, I don't know, seasteading, <laughs> they just kind of separate and then create this kind of cast of, uh, of uh, enlightened people who might, I don't know, save, save the day. I mean, while I'm saying this, this sounds absolutely nuts, but like, <laughs> this is kind of, you know, what people are trying to do in, in kind of in, 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 in the flesh, you know, people of our generation who realize these dynamics, very few of them, obviously, there's not that many people to realize these dynamics, but, you know, they're trying to, um, they're trying to breed, they're trying to have the babies, they're trying to stop, you know, stop the, the silliness. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if you think there's, there's a kind of a, a glimmer of hope in that. Yes, I mean, the future is unpredictable. And anything that is radically different from now will be radically hard to predict. So I think it's good to try all of those things. And I don't think you could stop people from trying those things. But uh, I don't really worry about it too much. To be honest, this is where we get into kind of Peter Thiel's critique of our current society, which is that no one really believes in a future that is better than the present day. They may be, they might regard it in some kind of abstract utopian way, but no one really specializes because they, they just, they don't really see a concrete good in the near future that they can reach by like picking some, some particular specialty or some focus or some movement, anything they can join. Like there's no, there's no real optimism for the future. Like when, uh, you had people like HG Wells writing, they had sort of fantastic visions of the future and not all of them were positive exactly, but they imagined wonders in the future. Whereas now we mostly imagine horrors and it's very easy. It's very easy to imagine horrors coming out of technology. It's much harder to imagine this kind of shining, uh, you know, utopian society, whatever that might look like. 
there's there's memes about it they mock it like they show like these gleaming towers and people wearing flowing robes maybe walking through these kind of corbusier uh structures talking about i don't know derrida or something like that and they're like this is the future the you know after we ban straight white men or something like that you know there's there's left and right wing versions of the meme but it's just that's a joke but there's no substance behind it we don't actually know what that what that future would be like yeah yeah it's it's interesting because I, I think that's a good question yeah yeah it, you know the 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 uncertainty of the future is, is one one way of uh of presenting it um i think i think peter thiel has that uh says that there there are two versions of the future that are um are kind of hopeful but uh, i don't think any of them are appealing to us there's uh, there's environmentalism in a way kind of like a averting apocalypse uh, vision of a good future which is almost like like an eschatological dream it's not necessarily a positive vision but it's you know it's uh, it's positive in contrast to the uh, to to the apocalypse um and then there's like just uh, the, the caliphate <laughs> where you know uh, Islam takes over the world and, and assumes its rightful place as the as the religion for uh, for the everyman, um, which is also quite a, quite an interesting take, I think. I'm not. I think in the second scenario, you you definitely see civilizational cycles. Really, in both of those, on on a longer timeline, we either stay in the Stone Age forever and eventually die out in some x-risk event and uh you know it's probably not the end of the sun it's probably something much sooner than that uh on the other hand there's like the the humans escape and colonize the universe situation and neither one of those looks anything like anything we can imagine like it, it just it would be a fundamentally different thing at that point and we might look at humans now, like those, those future explorers look at humans now as some kind of strange, like probably the way that we look at chimpanzees or something like that, you know, mm -hmm. like there's no, there's no escaping the context of humanity at that level without also escaping many of the things that define us as human. I don't think that's necessarily good or bad, but humanity as we know it obviously cannot survive indefinitely. All these things are very far in the future, but they're things that, that are, they're possibilities that are fun to entertain as a sci-fi writer. Yeah, I think that it's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, being a sci-fi writer, you're, you're kind of forced to to take this outside perspective. You know, it's, it's almost kind of what, what, what Curtis Yarvin uh, encourages people to do, to, to be, to not be participants in history, to be to be historians of their own time. And you, you kind of have to be, um, if, if you, you know, because you kind of have to kind of dig deep into the roots of, of what's going on and um, and be a, a diagnostician and not a, a shrieking participant. Yes, and on that note, I'd like to plug my upcoming book, which is not ready yet. I don't know when it will be ready. Uh, hopefully before the summer. Uh, which I'm calling They Have No Deepness of Earth. It's named after a line in the King James Bible in the uh, parable of the sower, one of my favorite passages. And it's going to be a collection of 
all the stories that I've written so far, along with some essays that kind of introduce them, explain them, and bookend them. And uh, it will be available for free as an ebook and for some amount of money as a, as a paid physical book. Uh, it will have a new story that I'm trying to complete. And also there will be a lot more editing and just sort of remastering to make sure that I'm really happy with the prose and there's no typos and, and so on. So I'm very excited for that uh, nice. forthcoming release. That's, that's very exciting. I wanted to ask you about that because I, I would love to, to, to buy your, your book in kind of an, an hard copy because, uh, you know, I've, I've, I struggle with reading any type of fiction, but I would really love to, to, to read this one. So, yeah, let, let me know when it comes that. out. I really tr oh, thank you. Yes, I mean, I'll, I'll definitely make some noise about it. I, I really struggle to not waste the reader's time because there's so much that we could read right now and all these things vying for our attention. And I think if you want to write effective fiction, you have to get to the point very, very quickly now, which is something you didn't have to do nearly as much in the old days. Writing like florid prose and giving all these, these flowery descriptions is great and can evoke a mood. But I try to keep the ideas very dense and very rapid fire. And if when I'm editing the text, I find myself like checking my Twitter feed, that is a bad sign to me. That means that I lost my own interest. So I t tend to read until I lose attention. And then as soon as I do that, I say, no, that's, that's a weak spot. I have to make it stronger. I have to make it twistier or more interesting so that when you're reading it, you aren't tempted to go check your feed instead. That's, that's kind of like the, the metric. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, a very, a very contemporary test for attention. <laughs> um, is, is this uh, your plan moving forward? Are you going to continue writing uh, science fiction? Are there any like bigger projects in your, in your future? I do hope to write a book that sort of compiles my, my philosophical or social takes and ideas. I've been wanting to for a long time, and I've had a number of false starts on it. It's very difficult to write like a definitive and persuasive summary of your own worldview. I think everyone should try it if they haven't. Uh, and I think it's something you could probably try over and over and mostly never succeed. So in a way, that's a very ambitious project, but I will continue writing fiction. I've had several ideas lately that I just have to write down and save for later because you can only really, I can only write one thing at a time. Yeah, I mean, to be very honest, I think there's there's definitely a market for people, you know, myself included. If you could, you know, just compile your your threads, your thread of threads itself is, you know, probably what at least a sixty, seventy thousand word uh, of opus. You know, there, there's at yeah. least at yeah. least yeah. So the, you know, the that's... problem with that is that a lot of it is is very yeah, a lot of it's very topical. A lot of it is like, you know, interesting observation maybe like some, some observations some insights some theory but then also like a joke about whatever was on your feed last week and so if you if you just lay all that out it uh it loses i think a lot of the power that it might have for some people when they read it in context and in in twitter it sort of presents as this like sort of uh, garden of forking paths but then if you just linearize it and you strip it of the of the topicality it's like is it really funny 
if I make a joke about, you know, some e-girl that went viral, you know, years later, and you read that, that idea, it's, it's, it's going to be, you're just going to be like, what, who cares? So taking, taking the timely things and transforming them into the timeless is actually a pretty big project. And it's part of why that book has yet to come out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it could be kind of like a, a definitely an in-group thing. Cause I, I would, I, I think I would like to read the jokes about the Ewa girl that, that went viral. Cause there's just something, <laughs> something nice and tactile to that. You know, it kind of has a, it has a timestamp and it's, you know, it, it, but that's also cause I'm, I feel like I'm a, kind of an in-group person. So I'm like, Oh, you know, I do remember that. <laughs> so yeah, you know, there, there's a market for anything. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's probably, uh, for, for mass market for people who want to, you know, you know, uh, come come to your work without a proper introduction. I think that's probably the the better move. Though I have seen people com commercialize their their tweets like that, and I thought, yeah, you know, that's nice, nice, nice grift. I like it. And Guppy did it, which was pretty enjoyable. Uh, you might even say it was delightful. But <laughs> I I think my my ambition is to write for people. Like you watched all those things happen, right? Like you saw all these little Twitter flavors and dramas. And, and paying attention to it is its own reward. I actually, I think it's very entertaining. You won't catch me uh, saying like, oh, Twitter is awful. Of course it's awful. Um, hell is other people. That's the famous quote, right? But so is heaven. I think that was sort of C.S. Lewis's insight. Heaven is other people, just they're good people. And you can find a lot of good people on Twitter. And I, I think that I have. But my ambition is to write for someone who might potentially read my book uh, 10 years from now, even 20 years from now. These are grand uh, ambitions. Like I hope a hundred years from now, that'd be incredible. I won't know if it happens, but what if it did? What if, what if someone a hundred years from now read one of my books? I would like them to be able to construct and understand what I'm talking about and not like, hopefully Twitter isn't still around in a hundred years and they can't go back and find all the things we talk about. I think that'd be very embarrassing. It'd be better, <laughs> better if that were not the case. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it depends. I, I find I find it charming, as a, but maybe I find it charming now because I'm part of it. I might be completely mm -hmm. embarrassed by it, as I am oh. now, by stuff I wrote 10 years ago. So <laughs> it's, it, it would make sense, yeah. I, I think there should be... There should be a social media network where after you're dead, all your accounts get moved there and get frozen. And so people can see it like a graveyard of your works, like some kind of afterlife Twitter. That would, that would be nice, actually. Yeah, with those kind but of if like... you you have to freeze it, though. Yeah, we were one of those kind of uh, emergent uh, AIs that, that reconstitutes you from your social media feed. Oh, God, God forbid that that thing gets out. <laughs> yeah, so I have um, an idea for a story that I never quite managed. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, continue. Uh, I have an idea for a story I never quite managed to write where a social network from a parallel universe started to intersect with ours. And so a bunch of like, basically uh, in Borges, you know, he has the story of Tlon, Ukbar, Orbis Tertius. And I was imagining what if a social network from Tlon were sort of interconnected with ours and we started seeing all these posters and people concerns 
that were not at all in the world and we couldn't locate them anywhere as this sort of single meeting point between two worlds. This turned out to be a very difficult story to write. So I still have not done it. Hmm. I, I, I like the premise. I mean, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited for, uh, for, for more of your stories. I mean, I, I started, I started reading God Shaped Hole, but I didn't want to bring it up because I haven't finished it, <laughs> but, uh, I, I really liked, uh, I really like it up to this point. I mean, it's, it's probably not going to go downhill from the point where I reach, so it's, uh, it's, it's really cool. And like you said, it's, um, it's it's got a really good pace like it's not something you you want to put down but i was i was working while i was, <laughs> I was reading it so i had to put it down just because of, of the nature of work uh but uh yeah it's 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 really good and i'm i'm, I'm excited to finish it no of course it's, it's quite episodic so hopefully it's easy to pick up and put down exactly um i want to ask you the question of the show right before i let you go um, and the question is simply, uh, is there an, a subversive thinker, uh, could be living or dead, um, you know, a, a person, a character, you know, what, whatever jumps to mind uh, that's, um, that you think people should know about, whose ideas influenced you? Uh, yes, actually, I knew this question was coming, so I, I thought about it a little bit in advance. And uh, I sort of have two levels. I have uh, the really... I don't want to say entry level. I have I have the medium stuff, which is uh, Roy Baumeister. I highly recommend his highly recommend his work. I'll give you the names of a couple of essays that that you might find interesting. Uh, Baumeister. He's a social psychic, and uh, he writes a lot about sexuality and culture. So I learned uh, a lot from him. I'm trying to remember the exact name of the essay. I said I thought about it, but I obviously didn't think about it that much. Uh, let's see. I think it's... Female Utopia in Power, something like that. Anyway, yeah. that's the entry level. Roy Baumeister, mm -hmm. read him. And then the more advanced level, and I say advanced, it sounds kind of pretentious. I don't mean like, oh, you need to be, look, this is just, this is a book that many people will probably struggle to even open uh, when they see the title, but you should read John Cudahy. That's the other thinker that I'm going to suggest. And there are dragons there, but definitely subversive. Mm -hmm. So those are my two recommendations. Okay, perfect. I've I've read some some of Baumeister's work, but I don't think I've read that essay. Uh, yeah, I, I I like him. He's uh, he's based. <laughs> um, well, zero. Thank yeah. you so much for uh, for for coming on the show. This is still a young podcast, but hopefully it's. Uh... You know what? I'm absolutely an idiot. Baumeister did not read uh, the essay I was thinking of. Though I do recommend Baumeister. He's very good. The essay I was looking for is called "Sexual Utopia in Power," and it's by F. Roger Devlin who I also recommend. Oh, okay. Sexual, sexual utopian power. Okay. Yes, and Devlin. Devlin. Well, excellent. I mean, that's good. I'll, I'll have to look those up. Uh, I, I know Roy Baumeister, but I have never heard of uh, of Devlin. And um, how do you pronounce the, the second one? The the deep level thinker? Cudahy. Cudahy. Okay. Cudahy. C-U-D-D-I-H-Y. Okay. Perfect.
Excellent. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on. Yes, thank you very much. It was a delight. And for anyone who wants to, to find your work, I mean, uh, <laughs> I will not uh, spell out your, your uh, Twitter handle, but if you could, <laughs> that'd be really useful. Yes, certainly. Uh, it's 0x49FA98. It's very easy to remember because the first numbers are half of the last numbers. <laughs> Good. Yeah. I mean, you guys out there do that. But also, I think the, the algorithm, if you put in 0HP, they'll find it. They'll find it for you. I've tried this before. Uh, it works. <laughs> so for any, any you know. Uh... It's, it's all too easy. Exactly. The algorithm knows what you want, guys. <laughs> yes. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 